this podcast, Strange, Rare, and Peculiar, is for kind of those in the know about homeopathy, deepening your knowledge, bringing you more information about what you need to know, and maybe what you can leave aside about homeopathy. Homeo what? Homeo what? Um, we are underway. Good morning. Afternoon, evening, tomorrow, yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Hello, everybody. Um, and, uh, good morning to you. It's podcast time. It is. It's birthday time. It's, it's birthday time Monday. It's not my birthday. Nor mine. Hmm. Whose birthday? Hahnemann. Hahnemann's. Hahnemann's birthday is coming up. Hahnemann's birthday. Monday. Are you sure it's Monday? The 10th of April. Well, am I sure? Because Hahnemann's birth certificate is contrary. Is it his birth certificate or his or, death certificate? Or no, I think it is actually his christening certificate. Right. And the, um, so Hahnemann was born on the 10th of April at the stroke of midnight. Well, that Doesn't makes that it, make for a great story? It was a dark and stormy night. Right, because it's April. So it would have been stormy in Germany. Right. I suppose. Springtime. Springtime. And and so the Hahnemann Monument in Washington, D.C. has his birthday as April 11th. Yeah, on the back of yeah. the monument, it says the Hofrath. Right. Which is, I mean, that's, a, that's for another discussion. Um, meaning the... Leader, the teacher, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because it says, I, I actually don't have my photo of it, uh, but it says something about, about the, the founder of homeopathic education, mm. doesn't it? It says something about education mm. on the monument. Yeah. We need to dig around for those photos. I have them sitting here. I'll, I'll, I can dig right now while you're, while you're talking. Well, I'll turn those notifications off. <laughs> I, I don't have any on. <laughs> but yeah, it says on that monument, the 11th. Whereas everywhere else, it does talk about the 10th of April and yeah, at the, uh, uh, around the stroke of midnight. It's kind of cool. I love that. Yeah. Nice. Um, Okay. I'm looking here from, we've been there a few times, so we would have been there in 2018. So I'm going to find that language. All right, you find the language. I'm done. In the meantime, um, what, uh, World Homeopathy Awareness Week is also um, yeah. You know, be I un- haven't underway. heard of a lot of events this year. Some years we've been completely booked up with our, you know, celebrating Hanuman um, events. Yeah, isn't that funny? I wonder if it's just it hasn't picked up since we're sort of in the brackish waters from the pandemic when we were doing so many things virtually to now going back to doing live events that just nothing has happened. I think we need to resurrect it. But we have an idea for one way that we're going to honor Hahnemann. And what's that? Well, we just, we realized that um, we didn't celebrate the third anniversary of HHN, the Homeopathy Help Network. It came and went. It came and went. It was so busy. It was because the conference was early this year. Mm -hmm. And so we came back from the conference right at, or maybe it was even while we were at the conference. Mm. So anyway, so we decided that um, we're going to move the celebration of the birthday of HHN to coincide with Hahnemann's birthday. And it's kind of our tribute. It's our way of giving thanks to Hahnemann. That's beautiful. What do you think about that? I I like it. It's three weeks late. 
That's fine. You can That's do that. Okay. It's you know, it was when we were finally getting up to speed. And so, what was the original birthday of HHN like? I, uh, the tw- well, so we would have gotten back from New Zealand on the twelfth of the twelfth of March, twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Two days later, the pandemic is you know off the hook, and. Within 10 days. So the 22nd. I think the 22nd of March is when we consider sort of the official birth of HHN. We were sort of piloting it from the first client. Mm. Uh, And I think I would have reached out to people by the 15th or 16th. And so it would have been like five days before it was systematically underway. Because you had... um you had uh, you were snowed under, right? Yeah. I mean, it was... You know, I think any of us who worked with the communities that were first hit, you know, for me, it was Crown Heights, Brooklyn, yeah. uh, the community of people that I, you know, served there. And they got hit so hard so fast, and we had no idea what we were doing. But, you know, it was interesting, because as we were talking about what, you know, what would the shape of today's podcast be? And of course, you know, right away, it was, well, we have to celebrate Hanuman. I mean, we're, you know, this will air around the time of his birthday. Um. And I was thinking about sort of, you know, the different ways that his work has influenced medicine, history, you know, whether it's stated or not stated. But I was thinking about it sort of, you know, personally in terms of our work and the work at AG and HHN and so forth and Home Foundation. And, and so I thought, well, if we really look at how really focusing on what Hahnemann has taught us, by really sort of, you know, paying, not just paying tribute, but sort of, um, what's the word? Like giving credence to where something comes from. Yeah. Because, okay, can I, I'm going to go tangential for a second here. I can tell you all. Yeah, I know. Because I'm, there's something that I've been thinking about. And that is, I think about how people love homeopathy so passionately. Uh It's like people become, um, infected with, it's like sort of a funny word, but with love for this modality. And I realized that part of it is that because there is very little sort of universal adherence to Hahnemann and his modality, what has happened is that people have created homeopathy in ways that it could be whatever they want it to be. And in a Good way and a not a good way. I mean, like everything, right? There's no, I mean, every there's a little bit of good and something that's not good, and vice versa. But so, for example, when I think about the way I practice, I think that I would be considered a Hanumanian homeopath, but I have learned and borrowed from person-centered therapeutic approaches. Uh-huh. And I use those techniques in my case taking yeah. to, I suppose, augment what I would do or augment getting the information. It's a, it's another more modern approach to getting information uh, and some... working with people and helping people. Right. Because... Is that what you're talking about? Well, no, but I love it. Let's stay there for a second. I was actually thinking something else, but that's okay. Because uh. where you've gone, though, I think is super important. You say something to the students that I love, and that is... Like, use your intuition in your case-taking and your intellect in your analysis, something like that? Well, I said there's no room for intuition in your case analysis, yeah. Right. But in in the gathering of information, there sure is, right? Because mm. we all have these ways in which we 
Have you been listening to my lectures? I mean, when I can, I do, of course. <laughs> of course. Because there is a way in, in that homeopathy has, over the course of the last 200 years, not even, yeah, I mean, I guess it would be the full 200 years. It has become something that is, I think, so much more than where it began. Mm. And in order to sort of get the most out of what it can give us, there's sort of this combination of the fidelity to what Hahnemann brought to the table and then bringing it forward, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, when we talk about provings, right? So, and I think, okay, just for context, I think why why I've got this on the brain Mm. is because I've been with the um, uh, part-time year three folks it's the beginning of their critical thinking in contemporary methodologies suite mm-hmm. of lectures. And so a lot of this is top of mind in, in going through this with them, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, working through with the semester four folks in, in full time, looking at application of principles. And so, for example, one of the things that I was doing with the, um, the part-timers was we had four hours over the past two weeks where we sort of looked at all of the new sort of materia medica and methodologies and asked critically thought through questions about their sort of clinical validity, mm-hmm. right? But the, the thing that I want the students to get is not this person is good, this person is bad, do this, don't do that. I mean, nothing is that straightforward. Wouldn't it be nice? Mm-hmm. But rather to ask questions about whether new entrees into this healing modality can be linked back to Hahnemannian principles or not. And if they if they don't, how can you understand them since you've got to use a different set of criteria for determining sort of what the outcomes are? Okay, so one of the things we talk about is provings. And I know you and I both teach about provings in the contemporary setting, right? So if we talk about provings, though, and we look at Hahnemannian proving mm-hmm. – or post-Hanumanian proving, a lot of these provings, which I love that our students will catch it if, like, I'm teaching Materia Medica and I don't have who proved it. They're like, um, excuse me, <laughs> where'd this remedy come from? It's so good. They're so well, you know, so well uh, entrenched in it. But you look at the proving information and it's like, so-and-so did, you know, a 1x trituration over three days. And they're like two people hmm. who were provers. Or like your example that you always use as the platinum proving where there were no, there were no women provers, and yet this is a female hormonal remedy extraordinaire, right? Mm. So how do we how do we sort of close that circle? Well there are gaps for sure. Right? Yeah. And and so it then okay, so then I'm gonna fast forward to the more Hahnemannian than Hahnemann provings that we do now and how much more information we get from it and how interesting it is to sort of elucidate this much bigger picture out of remedies. But like, that's not what happened in the beginning, right? And yet so many of the sort of, so many of the the newer remedies that have good provings teach us so much. The remedy that I will always go to for this example now is gallium. You know, so like, for example, if people say, well, well, we should really work with the remedies that have the old information because we know them so much better. It's like, well, gosh, what happens when you've got a polycrest in the making that just hadn't been born yet? 
right? So when I think of the Remedy Gallium, and I'm so grateful for, you know, uh, all the provers. This was a Gallium Metallicum was proved in Dynamis, Toronto. Some of our friends, dear friends, including Molly Punzo, were provers mm. in that. And that, that remedy, it, it sort of lay dormant um, until, yeah, um, nobody, it, Jeremy sent all the information. Jer- it was a Jeremy Sher proving, sent it to Jake Kiyakahi, who really dove in and sort of, using Jeremy language, cracked the proving. And it was really tough. Anyway, then it sort of is sitting there and, you know, the proving is out and, you know, maybe some people are teaching it and then there are a handful of people who know it. But we had, I had like a couple of cases and it was just sort of random. Like I read the proving and maybe like one or two details stick. And then we get a couple of great cases in clinic, mm. right? So like if I, this exa- this remedy, Gallium Metallicum, it's like this incredible PTSD remedy. Hmm. And it's there, and I'm, I mean, obviously, we're not going to go into, you know, talk, deeply talking about Materia Medica, but just very simplistically, there's this way in which one facet of the remedy from this sort of human experience is people living on the edge of sort of waiting for, hmm. like waiting for the other shoe to drop. How many times do you hear that in a consultation, right? So we had a couple of amazing cases in our teaching clinic, like where you think, well, what would I have done otherwise, right? And so... I, I then looked back at cases that I had where clients were like doing well, but not as much as I would expect. And what would I do? I would give aconite. Well, aconite is not a deep chronic remedy, but like you get a little mileage or you give arsenicum for the anxiety that comes from mm. this sort of feeling. Right. And then anyway, and then all of a sudden gallium is born. Mm. And gallium is not like some weird substance. I mean, it's a mineral remedy. You look at where it sits on the periodic table. You know, it sits in the neighborhood where you've got, you know, phosphorus and sulfur and arsenicum and germanium, right? So it like sits in a neighborhood where you've got minerals that are, you know, that we know have polycrest, you know, usage. So anyway, now all of a sudden, we've got all these students because they've seen They've seen gallium in the wild with a client. <laughs> I've now been able to ex- experience the healing from several of my clients. Oh, I left out the part. I went back after after seeing it a few times in clinic, going back to clients that I got mediocre results. And it's like, there you go. One client that I've been working with for years and years who's done well, she sticks it out. She's had great you know, results. She got gallium and she's, she said something to the effect of, is it possible that this is the remedy that I've been waiting for? Mm-hmm. Like, what? Mm. Yeah? Okay, so, but here's the thing. That's amazing. Han, right? Hanumanian provings don't, those remedies, they don't have that heft, not heft, but like that sort of deeper analytical, sort of psychoanalytical interpretations that we do. And we can't really go back and pro- and, and extract those from provings that are long gone because the simple language is often not there. Right. And it might be a bit of a projection if we start to do that. Don't you think? Yeah, I do, actually. And some of those, you know, big fan of Hahnemann that I am, some of those provings, I think we can still be really, really confident in them. But there's a number of unknowns in them as well. And um, some of the unknowns are also the uh, some of the individuals, you know, Right. I mean, you know, you know the Nenning story, and tell it. Well, they they called him a symptom factory. Yeah. 
The symptom factory. I think he's responsible for 44,000 symptoms. Holy macaroni. Uh, let me just think if that's correct. It's, it's, I teach that lecture each year and I always, you know, get clear on the, the stats. Sulfur's got 16. I think it might be 44,000 symptoms. Wow. <clears throat> now, a lot of those symptoms are the same symptoms. And there's another one. Nanning was the symptom factory, but the questions are... That, that have arisen over the years have been around Langhammer. Right. And Langhammer was, again, a, a student of, of Hahnemann that seems to have been quite a character and a, quite a depressive character. But it doesn't stop each and every proving that he was involved in. He's the one that comes up with the, oh, it's another day. Right. <laughs> I've got he's a, like the Eeyore of Provers. He's the Eeyore. He's the, uh, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Yeah. Yeah, he's the, you know, the the um, the depressed um, <laughs> robot. I suppose I better park oh. the car now. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and, and, uh, and, and then, you know, questions like, um, and these are, look, these are legitimate critical thinking questions. You know, Friedrich Hahnemann, when he was a part of. D- um, tell who he is. Hahnemann's well, son. Hahnemann's son, who injured his back. Yeah. They called um, him a hunchback, and he apparently wore quite an outfit. Like He did wear an outfit, yeah. He, he, like, he would have been sort of goth. He, right? could, he might not have Well, he's an interesting character because the, the story is that, um, and I don't recall which town they were fleeing from, right. but they had to get out of Dodge quickly um, because the, uh, you know, Hahnemann's fight fights many fights with the apothecaries but the story is then the cart overturned right friedrich was injured in his neck and back and the the infant died and um but he ended up in america well he did but before he ended up in america he also ended up you know learning homeopathy learning it you know from his dad probably sitting in the corner and watching you know imagine and uh and participating in a bunch of provings. But nevertheless, when you follow, because, of course, there's a paper trail everywhere right. in early homeopathy. And so it's very easy to look at, say, a Materia Medica in Leedham or Secuta or Dalkamara and looking at the back symptoms, going to the proving and seeing the code yep. and realizing that's Friedrich Kahneman, yep. who had a back injury. So there, there are legitimate questions around the way in which... Those are the unknowns about those early provings. Yeah. Uh, many, many folks have said, even notwithstanding all of those questions, we can rely on them. You know, remedies that have just quietly dissipated away from our consciousness over the years are, are they beca- have dissipated and gone away because the quality of the information is no good. But when it comes to Dolcamara, we know. Platina, we know. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Relunculus. All of those Hanumanian, early Hanumanian remedies, they seem to have stood the test of time with the unknowns included there. And, yeah. Mm. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I'm always thinking about my next research question. Yeah. yeah. So, because, you know, like when you when you get into doing research, it's like you amass this information and then the next question presents itself and it's like, oh, dear, <laughs> didn't think about that. Mm. And And so one of the things that I've been thinking about because, you know, I spent all this time, I sort of, just for context, if you're new to the podcast or this information, so I, I spent a lot of time looking at Hahnemann's origins. So in other words, what information informed 
the ways in which Hahnemann put together this system of medicine that we now know as homeopathy and the arc of its changes over time, which I find fascinating and I could talk about endlessly. Mm. Then, <laughs> and I do, actually. And funny enough, I do. Um, huh. But then when I was working on my thesis, it was, you know, I had I'd sort of gone there, but then these other questions came up and and I got more into sort of the history of medicine. And I, and I thought, you know, when I set out, I thought I was going in one direction. And as research always, you always find yourself somewhere other than where you set off. And so, you know, I spent this time sort of with Herring and Lippe and going through what happened in 19th century homeopathy in America, which taught me more than I ever thought that I could have gotten about Hahnemann. Mm. And I know that's sort of convoluted, and I don't know that I can really get into it, but here's what, here's what has come out of it. In, in reading all about homeopathy education, right, because edu- part of what landed me there is that there, homeopathy education really started in America, mm. and, and sort of what were homeopaths learning, and as educators, always asking ourselves, what are we supposed to be teaching? And there are so many different ways that people teach homeopathy that it's sort of dizzying, and you want to kind of figure out how to how to teach people so that they can actually do homeopathy. Okay, so that's I, th- I think that grounds it. Okay, so one of the things that comes up is that they prescribed really differently than we do today. There was a lot more, and and I'm leaving out sort of the, the sort of physical medical way of doing it, but because there was less of this synthesized information, you get more what we would now consider keynote prescribing. So aphorism 153 becomes so much more important mm. in in early prescribing because they hadn't they hadn't developed stories about remedies. Right. Right? Now, I've grappled with aphorism 211 for a long time as you know. <laughs> right? I mean, maybe that's my next tattoo. Um, but the grappling has to do with sort of this post-Kentian then Vitolkian, then Sankaran, then up into contemporary homeopathy, where this quote-unquote essence becomes the story, the mental and emotional story. And like, that's not really what 211 is about. And yet, Hahnemann clearly believed that it was the most important symptom. So if you don't, aphorism 211 is where Hahnemann says that it's the mental and emotional symptom, basically what the patient can't hide, that is the deciding factor in your prescription. But then it became, well, why not then just start there? It's kind of like how Mm -hmm. Hahnemann tried starting with sulfur to clear Sora in a case. Yeah. All right. So if we come back to that, what? but Hahnemann, he definitely believed it because he restructured how you orient approving to put the mental and emotional symptoms first. Mm. So so the question that I would ask, and I almost... (laughs) I almost want to channel Jeremy here because I think that, and, and, and in all fairness, because I've studied with Jeremy Sharon, I just uh, his language speaks to me. But the ways in which he's he has asked us to think about approving through the language of as if one person mm-hmm. makes total sense, mm-hmm. and it's complex. And I think what I appreciate about it is that it doesn't just say let's come up with a mental and emotional thing. But it is through the lens of simple language and braiding together the simple language, it creates a comprehensive picture where the mental, emotional, and physical speak the same language. It's like a trifecta. Hmm. Okay. Can we now join that back to the fact that that didn't exist? Got it. But that doesn't make it wrong. I Like, I love it. I mean, of course, I'm not saying I, I love it. Mm-hmm. 
But then how, and this is like a sort of a direct question for you, because how do we then utilize the old remedies in that way? Because as you said, we'd be projecting onto them. So do we have a divide in our Materia Medica? Oh, well, I mean, we do. Because, I mean, if you think about, I mean, I'd just answer it like this. If you think about the original 90 remedies. Yeah. That, that were proved... You're talking about like Fragmenta and Materia Medica Pura yeah. before chronic diseases. No, after and after chronic diseases. If we just think about Hahnemann's body of work and right. his mates, the proving union, you've got a... a co- it's actually a, a coherent body of work, and you're right, there's nuances within there. Yeah. But then if you... Hahnemann dies, 1843, and then there's Herring's proving union in Philadelphia... Which and I used to think was the bomb until I realized that it's so toxicologically yeah, oriented. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Sorry, I got all fired up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and and uh, and um, so you've got remedies coming into our materia medica, like listen, you've got the remedies coming into our materia medica that are inspired by Native American herbal tradition, right? Echinacea. Jocemium, yeah. all of those remedies coming in as well. You've got the remedies coming into coming into our, our body of work, and then Kant. It's interesting because it changes with Kant. Yeah, and and then and so what I'm saying is that the lens that you look at those that that information from will inform about how right you know we we um, we disseminate that information and then integrate it and then apply it, and so. But but with Kant, you know, he's the. It, it seems to me. Well, I mean, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure he's the one that says, "Come on, all the students, stand up, look out the window, see Mrs. Pulsatilla walking down the street, right? See Mr. Arsena come over there and building that, like you said, that you know that kind of person approach yeah. to Materia Medica." Now, while he did that, he wasn't always doing that because, of course. It, when you read his Materia Medica, there's a significant skill that he's also <coughs> demonstrating and, as well. well. And and he uses simple language. Good. Now, hang on. I just want to continue this yeah. because uh, I've not really thought about it like this before. When you get to the early 20th century, you've got other influences that are um, now arriving in popular culture from psychology. Yeah, exactly. That are that are contributing to the way that homeopaths think. So the you know, Freud wasn't invented when you know, when Kent was doing his lectures. You know, there's an overlap, but not much of an overlap. And by the time you get Jungian's influence or Jung, Jung's influence um in homeopathy looking at our materia medica, that creates a very different profile of a remedy. And so in the 20th century, there weren't that many remedies. I don't think there's that many remedies arrived until, say, the 1980s and 90s, right? So you've got a little bit of Jungian, yep. Freudian influence. But then, suddenly in 1985, or with Jeremy in particular... Well, can, I'm going to go back, though, because that's. I think that that's one, that's one good part of it. But there's more to it, because that's... You've also got... Goethe, who was a contemporary of Hahnemann. And so you've got the Goethean influence. What does that mean? Well, because Goethe was a big influence of Steiner, right? And so anthroposophical medicine Mm -hmm. is sort of like a left turn from homeopathy, utilizing a lot of the similar principles more of that Paracelsian influence. Now we've, now we've really complicated the conversation because now we've got the split in the alchemical lineages. And, and to me, this is where this is where the answers lie, but let's just leave it 
for now. That right. so you also have coming in and again through Germany, right? And and Goethe name checks Hahnemann, or at least homeopathy, even in Faust, right? So so we've got so what starts to happen is in the nineteenth century that sort of Victorian, a sort of late 19th century, early 20th century, that spirituality also comes in. So you've got Kent from America bringing in the Swedenborgian part of it. That collides with the, this rise in sort of the spiritual language, which is both Jungian, and of course Jung borrows all sorts of stuff from the spiritual interpretation of alchemy, again, Paracelsian lineage, he doesn't believe in any of the material mm. aspects of it. So that convolutes it. Then you get this absolute fanaticism about the occult mm. that was happening in in British culture at that time, which then, when you push that forward, you sort of need all of that information to inform what happened as homeopathy comes on the rise, especially in, in Britain, mm. because that that's where the Druids come in. And so once you get to that, because that's when you get to, you know, DeMonte and what's yeah, his name, Mon. But you've jumped a century there, or at least 70 years between those two. And that, and that, I think that's, you, you're totally right, because I think their Materia Medica, um, Thomas Mon? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the century, because, okay, because in between there, then you have the fight. That's where the spiritualist-materialist fight comes in. But it's not, it's a different mm. argument than the spiritualist thing that happens later with the Druids. The spiritualist, if I understand it correctly, the spiritual material debate that's happening at the turn of the 20th century is the high-low argument, and that's about dynamized medicine. Mm. And that's where you get um, who's the low prescriber that fought with Hughes. Hughes. So that's where you get that, you know, um, uh, that argument, I think, is often misinterpreted because it's seen in the presentist way of how homeopathy got its sort of spiritual bent and Ephraim 211 got completely convoluted later on down the pike. Mm. But if you go back, it's because they were still trying to grapple with the idea of dynamic disease. Mm. Does that make sense? Uh, well, that part of it does, yeah. What, what I was going to say... Because you asked me a specific question, and as we come forward to the 20th century, just tying up some of these ends, really, I think it's just really interesting that so many remedies have been proved since, say, 1985, many of which are, are, are often used today, but most of which are forgotten, right? They've just been, There was a proving experience. Right. It's, you know, been used once at by a, a homeopath somewhere with a bland response and the remedies kind of die away. They're all available in right. in our softwares and stuff, but, you know, how often do we talk about, I don't know, a prescription of... Well, I, I think, okay, so that, I think that's why some of the, the newer methodologies became really um, exciting because I'm thinking about when we all started studying the sensation method back in you know, back in the day. Yeah. And all of a sudden we were prescribing remedies that we never would have prescribed before. I mean, I can still think about a couple of prescriptions. One that really stands out was a Stillingia case. Mm. Like, when are you prescribing Stillingia? Or at least for me. It wasn't just in my, you know. But I got to it. Now, of course, Jeremy wrote about it in the syphilis book, but I, I'm pretty sure. 
Yeah. But it was not a remedy that I really had thought about, but I got it through the very beginnings of how Sankran laid out the plant families, mm. you know, with that, you know, the, the miasm language. But so I think that there's a reason why we got excited or we often get excited about these systems, right? It's because it gives us a way to find those smaller remedies. So but, is that what you were talking about right back at the beginning? Because you said, you know, homeopathy is something that lends itself to being added to or or adding to something else. Well, I'm asking a question because I have mixed feelings. Sorry, the way, that's the sound of me pouring coffee from my thermos. Imagine if we were having this conversation with wine. I mean, it would just be chaotic. It's chaotic anyway. Yeah, it's just... I live in this space all the time. It's sometimes good to just defragment and get it out, right? Well, yeah. So here's where I come <laughs> up against it. So here's a question for you. Because... So, so a couple things came up. One is homeopathy is a lot of things to a lot of people. Mm. And some of those things don't have anything to do with homeopathy. So mm-hmm. the term homeopathy gets used as, a, as an umbrella term for not just anything that's a potentized medicine, but outside of the closer circles, it's also anything that's like natural or holistic, right? Mm. That's, okay, so you, you've got that. But then when you sort of drill down into the world of homeopathy, um, and, and a lot of this is because we went into our, you know, we went into our dark ages um, in the, you know, from the beginning of the 20th century until that sort of slow resurgence until we hit, mm. you know, the explosion recently. And, and so there was a lot of um, opportunity for lots of people to take it and through their own charisma, yeah. make it into something that fit their, you know, their ideals. And, and it often works. One of the things that I think that I've, I've come to terms with is that sometimes they're really sort of incredible healers who have a way within their own mind to see a path to giving a remedy that they get a good response with, even if it's outside of any of the, you know, the, the philosophical tenets of homeopathy. The challenge is, and I think this is where you and I have talked a lot about it, is that that's not always reproducible. Mm. And that makes it difficult because it's like so-and-so's healing whatever, you know. Um, But homeopathy is reproducible. You were asking me a question. That was the background to a question. Well, the question, it's (laughs) the question, I guess, is around homeopathy is reproducible, by the way. It totally is. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But not when you add fancy business. Fancy business? Yeah. What's that? Well, I mean, there's a lot of sort of this, since we've been talking about this. You you know that that, um, the advent of. Shulton's approach and the use of the periodic table and the combining of minerals as remedy solutions um, came out of his dissatisfaction with the quality of Hahnemann's provings and the lack of reproducibility. That was the or- that's the origin of it. I asked him that. Mm. That's the origin of it, and um, and he attempted. And, and, you know, then you can say, well, I mean, had you stuck with Berninghaus and Hahnemann, reproducible homeopathy wouldn't have had that trouble. But, you know, his attempt at yeah. f- looking at the map of nature, looking at the symptoms of the client and 
using that as a clinical decision maker, you know, that that's its origins. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's not a homeopathic process. Right. It's, which and it's it's like I really appreciate when people try to make logic and order out of something, yeah, which is yeah, what yeah. a lot of these thinkers do. Yeah. For those who aren't familiar with sort of the beginning of Jan Schulten's work, so so you, you sort of the way that I explain it when I'm teaching it is um, through the lens of Dmitri Mendeleev, who was a 19th century um, uh, scientist and chemist who was working on a, a basically a chemistry textbook. Now I'm oversimplifying here, but basically there was no, you know, it was very difficult for him to teach what was an evolving, you know, um, methodology. And so he, he recognized a predictive pattern in the elements that had been isolated. Mm. He monkeyed around with it until he was able to, through his understanding of atomic weight, atomic measure, and so on and so forth, look at all of the, the, the elements and then create the ta- what we now know to be the periodic table of the elements, basically as a predictive pattern. So he was able to, to recognize that certain elements that had not yet been isolated, discovered, or even thought about, that they would ultimately be discovered because of this predictive patterning. And Jan Scholten basically did the same thing um, by taking laying out the periodic table, looking at all the remedies for which there were provings, then he added his own spin to it based on what you just said, mm. and then filled in the gaps. Now, I mean, this is it's it's something that creates a little bit of a challenge in, in, in how you've got this information now. So if we use this as an example, Schulten's work, his publications were what in 93? 93? So since that time, lots of those remedies for which he had speculative ideas about what they might look like, just like Dmitry Mendeleev did. Well, there are provings now. So I was talking about gallium before, right? Oh, uh, right. So, yes. so what happens now when you've got someone who is a luminary in the profession, or at least has a very big platform, and is considered to be the father of you know the periodic table study in contemporary homeopathy, has outdated work. So if you if you are a student at AHE and you use a Schulten reference for a remedy that has a subsequent proving, it's going to get sent back to you. Mm. Go go to the primary source. Yeah. So you, it's like every time we have one of these discussions, we're peeling back another sort of layer of information that we take for granted as if, as if it's like settled law. And what happens is we have to ask another set of questions, you know, which makes... Which makes sense then that people would say, well, I want to go back to some of these, you know, frameworks like the, you know, lots of people are loving polarity analysis now, which then says, I'm only going to look at whatever hundred and some remedies. Okay. I mean, if you, if you're grappling with how to integrate all of the information, I get that. Mm. It's going to make sense. Mm. But if you are able to sort of. And it's reproducible. And it's reproducible. And you know what? In, re- in in some senses, I'm really happy that people are getting... It sort of gets rid of a lot of the fluff. Mm. And it mm. takes sort of, you know, part of Benninghausen's work. But but you can take Benny. I mean, I use Benninghausen's methodology just in an expanded form. Mm. Because the idea is just leave the crap out. I mean, and I would... I, I, mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I think you do the same. Uh, yeah. You know? Um. Okay, but going back to this original point, right? So if uh, I'm kind of I'm doing this from the framework of this 
suite of lectures that I teach about critical thinking, right? So one of the first things that I do when I introduce this concept is to, you know, if we look at Hahnemann and Hahnemannian improving as sort of the, the, the gold standard, which is a great alchemical term to use, um, and say, okay, well, that's what we have to follow. And then you actually look at what those provings are like. It's like, hmm, okay, that's interesting. Then a secondary thing is to say, well, we don't need to get all reductionistic and materialistic about it. And we can prove that by looking at the making of causticum, which is a straight-up alchemical process. Mm. Anybody who wants to um, learn a little bit more about causticum, I would highly recommend um, John Morgan, um, John Morgan from Helios. Um, he has this article, I think it's called The Mystery of Causticum. And if you just Google John Morgan, Mystery of Causticum, you'll see. And he talks about the challenges in the reproducibility of causticum. And then he tells this amazing story of being um, in Ireland at Rasse. Do you mm. say Rasse or Rasse? Scotland. Oh, sorry, Scotland. Mm. How do you, I was so worried about mispronouncing. Rasse. Rasse. Yeah, two A's. R-A-A. Yeah. S-A-Y. Um, and how... Uh, he burnt marble on the beach mm. to create the, you know, the ash from which causticum would be more appropriately made. And then, you know, you look at just if go to chronic diseases and look at the instructions for the making of causticum. I mean, it's like pretty difficult. And then when you hear a pharmacist say, yeah, I've only really been able to do it a few times. You go, well, wait a second. That's that's a remedy that we're using all the time. All the time. All the time. Yeah. Okay. So so when so when I when I you know <laughs> ask students to come on this journey with me, right? We start with this this idea, this elevation of Hahnemann. Then we look at a whole bunch of different provings, and then you know we end up back at causticum. So like you can take this linear idea, and you can go to more and more seemingly speculative interpretations of homeopathy and then you get to the end of this line and you have loop to loop back around to causticum right and so you take what is considered to be a linear process and it all of a sudden becomes a circle did that make any sense whatsoever it totally makes sense i i i'm i'm keeping up with you today um although we've not looped back to the beginning because the beginning was Hahnemann's birthday right mm-hmm. That was the beginning of this conversation. And homage, right? So HHN, yeah, which is yeah, yeah. Our, that's our way of giving thanks for this incredible modality that we've been given. Yeah. And then... And its nuances and diversity and, and the influences right. that have come along and how it's influenced other things. And, and then, um, you know, it's, it's, got a long, it's got a long, long history, you know? And don't you think we have a long way to go? Uh, I do. I do. I think um, the contribution I really want to make is to understand the shape of our profession at the moment. Um, uh, I want to get facts on what we do, our perspectives, our perceptions with all of the um, the work that we're doing at the with the PGRN, right. the Practice Generated Research Network, and our, and our focus on on robust research about us mm. and about what we do, I think we will, from that from that kind of line in the sand base. It's twenty twenty three right now, but let's understand who we are, what we do, our diversity, and all the rest of it. And then, um, yeah, of course, there's 
Mm-hmm. I want to. I'm glad you're doing that. I mean, I want to participate in that from the clinical side, yeah. but I I want to ask a totally different question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're elsewhere, aren't you? I really am into the like. What is homeopathy? Mm. You know, and you know, it's funny because people who don't know us well. You know, everybody projects onto everybody, like, whatever they think about them. Yeah. Mm. And boy, I'll tell you, I've taken a lot, I've been taking a lot of heat. It's amazing how, how cruel social media space can be and people can be. Oh my God. You know, I mean, I, not to like, not to put this back on me, but I think just from a personal experience, I just, I hope this isn't happening to other people, but, you know, here we are trying to really provide a service. I mean, we consider ourselves to be in service to homeopathy by bringing up the difficult questions so that we can answer them together in non-judgmental spaces. And I can't believe how, like, the stuff that people are projecting onto me, and interestingly, not you. Yeah. Right? There's a way, and I think as a, as a profession that is really dominated by women. It's got to be 90%. It's people gotta be should more be than nicer. 90%. Like, you know... If I'm willing to do the work and not judge you, I would just ask for that in response, mm. right? So I wish people would stop projecting that because it makes it really hard um, to to sort of gather a thick skin to be able to do this work. And I say that because people have projected sort of their own judgments in protection of what they think their homeopathy is, as if somebody's going to take it away, mm. without having any idea of where I've come from or my practice, which is about seeing what has worked and what hasn't worked through not just my personal practice but years of teaching and seeing thousands of cases mm. in you know in the clinic and the supervision model that we've built where you know we as a group of practitioners ask hard questions about our own attachment to our own you know how we've been taught homeopathy and the ways in which when you are left with clinical responsibility and you have you know said you're you're pledged your fidelity to homeopathy and not to adding other non-homeopathic stuff to it, mm. then you've got to ask hard questions. And so, you know, I would I would set, I don't want to call it a challenge, but sort of a like a really serious re- request. I mean, I doubt the haters are listening, so I'm kind of, you know, speaking to the people who, who are willing to listen to this. But, you know, we in the research work that we're doing at HH, at um. Uh, home foundation and the education that we're trying to the educational model we're trying to create at AHE is not about creating more differences but rather how do we understand the ways in which the differences that have sort of come forth over time have fragmented us as a profession Mm. and the ways that we can bring that back by a greater understanding of when we practice Hanumanian homeopathy we get good outcomes, right? And and I don't, I mean, I just don't understand how that should be a source of division. I think it should be a source of really robust conversation that's backed up by evidence and research. And celebration, especially. And celebration. In his birthday week. Totally. Because I think what I hope that this conversation has demonstrated is that we don't look at the, you know, 18th and 19th century as being every single answer. Oh my. But as a roadmap. Yeah, totally. You know? Like I feel like if just, oh. I feel like I have been able to do a better job with my client base, which is mostly kind of complex autoimmune stuff, mm. through a better understanding of chronic diseases. 
that has been the tool that has helped me more than anything. And as you know, from being, you know, around my practice for so long, I've tried lots of other stuff. Mm. You know, I've, I've done the studies of the what would be considered more fringy aspects of homeopathy, nutrition, studying functional medicine, going to all those conferences. You know, I've spoken at spirituality and medicine conferences. I mean, I'm not like some, you know, just total right wing homeopath, right? <laughs> But and I don't know what the difference right wing, left wing, and homeopathy. I mean, I I want I want to do that on uh, that's the annex podcast. I don't want to because I don't want it to. I don't care about people's politics. I don't. No, want it's to know. not about politics. No, no, no. You don't think it'll get interpreted in that way? Oh. maybe. Well, that would be naive. Language. I mean, that's that's that. No, but to understand. Well, you don't get arrows thrown at you. I mean, everything that comes out of my mouth now is is subject to oh, yeah, people yeah, yeah, sending right. me, you know, hate. Um, but. What I think is, you know, when, you know, having gone down all those different roads, what I found is that I've gotten the most success in my clients and in helping others to learn through Hahnemann's philosophy and application of principles, Hmm. you know? Hmm. But I did ask those other questions along the way and have kept little nuggets of it for... Well, I think that that's ultimately what we, what we do. Um, And yeah, same for me. Um, so that's, that's our celebration of Hahnemann is just to say like, this is, you know, this is the person who I'm going to wear my beanie all day. Your Hahnemann beanie. In celebration. I love it. It's a bit warm, but anyway. It is, but it's not going to be warm on Monday here. So you can definitely wear it on his birthday. Um, I'll do so, that. so kind of in, in wrapping this up. So a couple of things. One is I, you know, from the research that I've done into the origins of homeopathy, that alchemical lineage, I really, I, I, I think I'll never, well, never say never, but I think it would be really hard for me to walk away from it after seeing that, after finding evidence that what Hahnemann has done is he actually systematized something that from ancient times forward was attempted to be kind of coordinated in, or whatever the word is, into a system of medicine. Mm. And he's actually done that and laid this incredible groundwork. And I think anytime we're going to riff on it, it's got to be, like, I would like it for me anyway, Mm. and for Mm. our teaching, like, to come from that space of of real um, attempts to understand the philosophy. Yeah? And with that, you know, by, by doing that, we've been able to help a lot of people. I think that's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Do you have a wish for sort of 20, you know, like looking at it from Hahnemann's birthday on? Maybe that should be like our new year, um, the homeopathy new year. Like Chinese new year. Yeah. Mm. Do you have a wish? Like, what do you think when we come back to do this next year, hopefully, what what kinds of things would we like to have seen accomplished? Oh, I've got a whole lot of sort of personal, I, I suppose, actually even egotistical um desires and accomplishments mainly papers published and a whole lot of steps forward and yeah in our research work i've got uh, like a conga line of of papers yeah lined up and research projects and 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 the like but i don't think that's what you meant um i'm not quite sure i mean for us i i do i do see some of the horizontal violence in our profession within our profession that you're talking about yeah. uh, i don't see it happening to me I see it happening to you, and I think there's got to be a conversation about the way in which, uh, I don't want to get controversial, but the way in which women uh, communicate with each other that that are often in positions of leadership. But I've I've seen that that violence with you. 
uh, to you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't see it from you. And um, and I, I would think that I, I would ask that we would we would be better than that. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, we are we're pretty open as a group. You know, I mm. mean, our foundation is home foundation. It's a place for everyone, mm. um, and which means that. You know, just like in a family or with friends, you don't always agree on everything, but you find a way, and 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 we learn through our differences, or at least that's it. Mm. You know what my what my hope is for the next year? Yeah. What's um, that? By the way, thanks for acknowledging that. I don't, you know, I certainly don't want to complain, but I do think that when things go unsaid, um, it just creates more tension, and I don't want that. I don't have time for that. Mm. Um, but one of the things that's happening that I love is that. Um, in the same way that this um, acceptance of diversity is happening, is that the conversations between parts of the homeopathy community, members of you know um, stakeholder organizations, are having conversations that did not happen before, and they happen now through incredible respect for each other's work. And so, my hope is that the hard work that's been happening through, you know, like. We're working with the AIH, you know, creating a bridge between licensed medical nice. homeopaths and professional homeopaths by by really respecting all the work that everybody does, um, working to support the pharmacopoeia. You know that these are really these are really important conversations that are being had. So my goal and my wish, and setting it off as we approach Hanuman's birthday, is that. We, we take the integrity um, of the medicine and the, and the gift that we've all been given as, you know, incarnating in this lifetime to go forward with this, that we use that energy to, to create unity and to, um, and to not look at differences as, you know, camps, but rather to find strength in what we do so that we can all do a better job. How's that sound? I love it. Me too. All right. I reckon that's it. That's what, a, what an amazing, uh, I was going to say rambling walk in the woods that was. Yeah. Nice. It was really nice. All right. Let's do it. Let's hit it for the day. Hope everybody has a really wonderful week. See ya. AHE is changing the face of homeopathy education by raising the bar through rigorous academics and unparalleled clinical training delivered live through the soulful use of cutting-edge technology. AHE prepares its students to become fully rounded homeopathic practitioners from anywhere in the world. Apply today and ask about the early enrollment discount at ahe.online. Mm-hmm.